Kale Skalrud is the Vice President of Sales and Brand at Harry, a New York City-based tech company reimagining the way hospitality thinks. Kale's ventures include Mercenary Work at Scaled, a consulting company spearheaded by the great Jake Dunlap, and a couple of tours around ADP. He's actively involved with hockey and lacrosse, as they were both part of his life growing up and up and through college. Kale is the chair for the Young Advocates for the Jefferson Awards Foundation, a member of UNICEF, and the founder of Scaling Ventures. Please enjoy this amazing conversation into the mind and practices of Kale Skalrud. Uh, welcome to the show, Kale. Um, welcome everyone else to our first video interview of the podcast. Um, you know, uh, I guess I've been starting off with this trend of kind of jumping into everyone's education first, but okay. um, even even before that, um, you know, you have such an exotic last name. I think that I would like to, and as well as my listeners would like to know, kind of where that comes from and. Um, how are you, are you a second generation, first generation or, you know, kind of no diving into the- Yes, no doubt. Well, you know, if you throw a couple A's in there, throw a J in there and everybody's Scandinavian, you know, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yes. Yeah, so my roots are Nordic. My uh, great grandparents were from Norway and they okay. migrated to the U S and then I'm like, kind of like the textbook um, Midwestern, Nordic roots. My uh, mom and dad grew up in Minnesota and my, mm-hmm. my dad's side of the family is like pure Norwegian. My mom is more on the Irish side, um, but their roots were in Minnesota. Um, you know, so kind of the, the old, the, the, the Nordic Scandi Minnesota vibe. And yeah. then uh, my mom and dad moved to Denver and then they set roots here. And I, I you know, was born and raised in Denver, Colorado. So it's uh, interesting. The first day of school, Speaking of education is always interesting because I can tell when they get to my name because they just don't even know what to do. And that's from, yeah. you know, it it's pronounced Kale. Um, and my yeah. actually the name is kind of interesting. My ironically, my brother's name is Eric with a K, which is like the most traditional Norwegian name ever. Mm-hmm. And it, but nobody has any issues with that. And and my my Kale, and like the traditional version of my name is Shell, which is K J E L L. So my mom my mom kind of put an American twist on it. And then uh, that godforsaken superfood came along. So now everyone's like, yeah. oh, like, like the lettuce? So I'm like, yeah, I like the lettuce. Like yeah. the lettuce. Man, I, ooh, I don't know that I could be able to deal with a food. I know with my own last name, they just. Yeah, right. It's like, uh, uh, and I'm like, like hey, I'll help you. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> I'll help you. I'm not here. Don't worry I'll about it. <laughs> exactly. Just don't even worry. Too many U's for you. I know. I understand. I get it. That's it. That's it. But um, and so, so then to kind of dive into your education, we so you start off at Gettysburg College, um, yes. and you know you go for business. What when you're a freshman, eighteen years old? What is your um, like? What do you, what do you think you're going to be when you go to school? When you enroll at Gettysburg? Oh man, that's a good question. So I played in Denver. The culture was, it was not so much baseball and football. It was heavy hockey and lacrosse. Mm-hmm. And so in high school, I played a lot of hockey and lacrosse. Um, and I was fortunate enough to get some looks to play college lacrosse. Um, not much on the D1 side, you know, a lot of D3 opportunities, which were these smaller liberal arts schools like NESCAC kind of Northeast schools. 
And mm-hmm. so that brought me to Gettysburg. And I knew that we had a chance at a national championship, which I was really excited by. And I knew that a liberal arts degree was something where I could kind of put my hand in a lot of cookie jars, so to speak, and, and start to see what, what I liked. But I knew that I wasn't going to get a really focused, kind of specialized, deep education. So to answer your question, I would say that I didn't really step into it knowing, like, um, yeah. you know, what I was jazzed by, you know, and, and in high school, you know, I think I gravitated towards, like, the softer, if you will, disciplines where, mm-hmm. you know, I, I liked, I liked philosophy and English and history. Well, not so much history. I, I did trend a little bit towards like economics and stuff like that, but I, I definitely wouldn't have identified as like a math brain or like a STEM brain. Um, right. So I got to Gettysburg and frankly, my priority freshman year was to get in good shape and stay out of trouble. Right. Of course. I mean, yeah, I think I was an athlete student too when I was in my search. So it was like, Oh, school. Mm, athletics. So I think that um, I can definitely understand and resonate with that. And did you play all four years? I did. I did. Very cool. Yeah. I know that that's, that's an achievement in and of itself. I know uh, myself, I fell off. Um, a couple of my friends, we just get injured or majors get too hard. And it's just, mm. it's hard. It's, college sports are definitely tough. Um, they're a whole new monster. Yeah. And it, was, and it was an interesting story. I mean, I, I think, so I, I never started in my four years. Um, and I, I, I blew up my shoulder my junior year of high school and that ruined hockey prospects. And then um, I stepped in and my freshman year, I broke my wrist skiing, which was, uh, mm. you know, coach loved that. Uh, so I was always kind of like dancing around and then I, I had a good shot to really step into it my junior. And every year I just grinded and just hustled and hustled and hustled and kind of, just stepped into like, you know, it was the starting three attack when I played attack. And I was like, all right, my freshman year, I was, you know, the seventh or eighth attack. And my sophomore year, I was the sixth or fifth. And then junior year, I was, you know, kind of vying for that fifth or fourth, or fifth, fourth, third spot. And then, you know, I made mm-hmm. it onto the starting field a little bit, but I never really started. And to be candid, I, I think that that was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me because it was, it just taught me this, this kind of relentless grind and to see incremental performance but also mm-hmm. to be to be satisfied with perhaps not achieving the goal that you perhaps had in mind at the beginning, but still finding fulfillment in kind of like that process and the journey. So I guess long story short, I just ate humble pie relentlessly. And yeah. <laughs> and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of glad I did. You know, I think it taught me more than stepping onto the starting field out of the gate would have helped. Yeah. yeah. I think that um, just in what I've seen, I, um, I know that, I guess I, I, I hate, I hate to say it sometimes, but in my arrogance, I mean, I've always kind of been in the forefront athletically. And um, I think not being so humble kind of hurt me because I would walk around very arrogantly. I'd walk around like, oh, well, I, I'm, I can do this. I know I can yeah. do this. It's fine. And then, and then someone who works a hundred percent harder than me, um beats me and they're already leagues ahead of me because i haven't even set myself up to work hard and that um translated beyond sports that also translated to my schoolwork but um definitely i think that you persevering for those four years is really quite a testament because um as i mentioned i know a lot of people who couldn't so i think that's really cool i appreciate that and then, so when you, so you graduate and you're looking for your first job, you come to ADP. 
what what is that like you're working what a payroll a payroll provider so what is that what's that world like (laughs) so this is actually kind of a good story so before adp actually so and and kind of I guess Gettysburg, that was my kind of first foray into like the Northeast, into like Connecticut, kind of Manhattan mm-hmm. culture, where we all kind of inherited a definition of success, which was like, be an investment banker, go be a master of the universe, you know, and, and kind of pursue wealth and, and things and have a flat in Manhattan and all that. And then my junior year, I studied abroad in Denmark, Copenhagen, mm-hmm. which was like a socialist kind of environment where you would, you know, you visit people and it's like, you know, what, what are you studying? You'd be like, you know, archaeology. You'd be like, you know, yeah, Indiana Jones is the coolest dude ever, but like you, you can't study archaeology. Like you have to get a real right. job. Like what are you going to mm-hmm. do for work? You know, like I want to be a Ninja Turtle, man, but you know, that's not very realistic. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, uh, and, and so that kind of shook me in terms of like my motivation and, and how I was thinking about success. So I, I kind of, and obviously being an, a college athlete too, like I, I, you know, I didn't intern anywhere. My summer mm-hmm. job was to stay in shape. And so I think that that, that hurt me because there was no process of elimination that happened. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, oh, I'll work in my neighbor's law firm. And, and okay, I don't want to be in law, cross that off. Or I'll go, you know, volunteer at the hospital. Don't want to be a doctor, right? Like I wasn't kind of living through those types of things. Um, but I was a huge music advocate. And so come back from Denmark, I'm like, I have no idea what I want to do. What the hell? I'm like, oh, I'll work in finance because that, you know, finance jobs, you make a lot of money, right? Just right. a naive kid, right? And then come back from there. I'm like, what am I going to focus on? And I was always very passionate about music. In Denver, there's this really cool uh, concert venue called Red Rocks Amphitheater, which is this mm-hmm. outdoor concert venue. So that was like a big part of my upbringing. And so I was listening to a lot of music and I put together a blog that was getting like a decent following at that point. And in the summers, I couldn't fly home because we were in, I'm sorry, in the spring, I couldn't fly home because we were in season. So I would stay with my Mm -hmm. buddy, Tommy Barnett, and his dad was the co-chair of Columbia Records. So I would stay there at Easter and I got to talking with his pops and he said, you know, you should, we have this internship program. And I ended up studying at Gettysburg International Business because that always kind of appealed to me. And it gave me the opportunity to study in Denmark. And uh, he said they had this international business program. It's like, come move to New York and intern at Columbia Records. And so mm-hmm. as cliche as it sounds, I legit like packed my bags and moved to New York with like a one-way ticket and no dough to get back. And uh, it fell in love with the city, fell in love with right. everything that was happening. And uh, the industry was kind of in turmoil at that point. The executives had beta access to Spotify. So oh, wow. like, the writing was on the wall that like the whole notion of a record label was about to radically change. Um, and so I kind of decided to move away from that. And I had Mm -hmm. a friend of mine from Gettysburg who was at ADP and I I had no idea what payroll was. I had no idea what anything else was. I just knew, and this also sounds cliche that I wanted to be a seat. Like, you know, I wanted to build like a CEO kind of revenue facing build Mm -hmm. the business building blocks uh, type role. And that a a sales um, kind of training environment would be a productive step in that direction. So I went over to ADP and started in their small business group which was like the hard knock sales school of the century, dude. It was like mm-hmm. selling payroll to small businesses down, door to door <laughs> in like the financial, I had a zip code. I had zip wow. code one zero 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 six, which was like, like right adjacent to wall street. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that there was the, speaking of humble pie, there was some more humble pie, man, just <laughs> running around, running around in my hundred dollar suit, trying to get people to buy payroll. Wow. So, but, so, uh, I mean, going door to, uh, what, what's, what's that pitch? What's that pitch? Hey, 
you guys need a payroll provider? Like, what's that? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, it was basically like, how much do you hate your current provider? Mm-hmm. Like, and and will you just trust me to take on this commodity service? Um, and after a while, I started to get fl- clever and I started to network with business bankers and CPAs and groups like that because mm-hmm. they were much more valuable in kind of the, the small business conversation and whoever they recommended really their clients would go with. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and that, that was a lot of fun, I guess. And it was like, you know, in the ADP too, like they had basically operationalized one of the most effective sales engines at a national scale. So it was really interesting exposure and good training. And I think to the extent that I wasn't aware of what was really happening, but now that I look back on it, I'm like, wow, like they had a pretty fine tuned machine. Um, but you know, it was a very transactional sale and, mm-hmm. and known as like a kind of a high burnout type environment. Mm-hmm. So, I, and, yeah. and it's considered like a stepping stone type gig, you know? So mm-hmm. I kind of got to that point pretty quick. Okay. And so then, um, before you move on to your next position, what do you, what do you take from, what have you gathered from that experience? What is, what are your three biggest takeaways from that? Oh man, that's a good question. Ooh, Nick, that's a good question, dude. Um, God. That I think I felt shame because it felt like a little bit of like a dirty job. Like I didn't think that it was like sophisticated, you know, mm-hmm. like I wasn't as, as proud. Like it was like, I work for this massive corporate. I sell payroll, which is the least sexy thing in the world. And I get doors slammed on me nonstop. Uh, and so I guess if I've learned something kind of looking back on that, it's, it's that you never judge a gig like that because it taught me so much. And it was such an insanely valuable experience. And I think that, um, that I wish I would have known that in the moment or that, right. you know, that, that you, you can't judge a book by the cover, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, would be three learning lessons. So that would be one. A second one would be, um, that there's nothing like hustle, hustle, no matter what it is. Um, you know, whether, you know, from Jay-Z to Jeff Bezos, you know, if, if you, you take the opportunity that you're given, and as you said, right, as an athlete, like sheer talent will only get you so far, but hustle will get you so far. You know, if you just grind, you can basically make anything into anything. And I, I kind of learned that. And uh, God, what was the third thing? Uh, that I was, in, that uh, it's very valuable to plant yourself where the action is. Um, Scott Galloway who's super you would love Galloway if, if you don't follow him he's written some good books No Mercy No Malice mm-hmm. is his blog um, and he used to say that the biggest correlation to like income and growth trajectory is usually your zip code um, like where you live right and, right. and so um, I'm glad that I had kind of immersed myself in the city because I think of nothing else just getting to work was hard at the beginning <laughs> I was yeah. like, this kid, just like the subway was buzzing. And I was like, oh my God, people are asking me for money. That dude's like passed out over there. I'm like, just trying to like navigate this thing. And, and, uh, but I, I did learn a lot. And I think that was valuable too. All right. And so, and so then you move on to, um, BMI Research Inc. So <clears throat> you're a business development executive there. What as a business development executive is the difference between that and like a business development manager or a 
business development representative? I guess where where sure. are the tiered differences? Yes. Uh, so let this be a very good example of how very little titles mean, <laughs> uh, you know, because business development executive, um, I was a salesperson. I was a frontline producer, right? It's mm -hmm. probably like the simplest way to think about it. And, um, and I was carrying a quota and I had a, a territory and the territory mm -hmm. was the Southwestern United States. And basically I jumped over there. ADP was like the most amazing sales culture but the it was not it was very i didn't get the stimulation that i needed intellectually and if you look at bmi we were selling market research on emerging markets so looking at things like country risk all these different industry verticals you know it was like the economist on steroids so it was just like mm -hmm. brain candy right it was like the total opposite right. um and that's originally what what drew me to the gig um but to answer your question like bdr in today's kind of nomenclature is like more top of the funnel kind of inside sales function where you're pursuing leads, engaging. It's a lot of marketing and kind of communicating value proposition, qualifying your audience. And then mm -hmm. when you create opportunities, then you would work with what, you know, is mostly called like an account executive today. Um, but in my day, a business development executive was just a fancy way of saying, uh, I guess you would call it an account executive today, but we yeah. were managing full end to end sales cycle. So I was working, dude, this was, this is when LinkedIn was just getting spicy. So this was like 2012. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were, we were pulling our own leads. And when I say that, I mean, at lunch, I would have a spreadsheet up and I would literally just copy and paste titles and names from LinkedIn. And then, mm -hmm. you know, and we would spend every day doing that to kind of fill up the coffers and then we would hit it. Um, but that, that was an amazing gig because it was uh, working a lot with like corporate strategy groups, international development groups, big heavy industries, oil and gas companies. Mm -hmm. And you would be talking to like chief economists, um, you know, people like that, that were trying to think, all right, should we go drill in like, you know, Brazil or Angola? Like, do, what do we think about the, the economy? You know, what do we think about the, the rest of the supply chain there? So it was just heady, heady thinking. Um, and there was a gentleman there who was the, the head of research, Terry Alexander, who's amazing. And we, mm -hmm. there was this story, we used to call it uh, total analysis, which was a trip. And it just went to show how connected the economy was. And it was, let's see if I get this right. Oh God, it's been so long since I thought about this, but it was something like basically how the price of oil impacts the demand for Carlsberg beer. And it was basically like the price of oil is almost directly pegged to, to the Russian currency, the, the ruble. And Mm -hmm. Russia is the biggest consumer of Carlsberg beer as an export. And, mm -hmm. and so he was like, literally you'd be a technical analysis was like showing how those things were correlated over time. So that, anyway, that's, I, 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 uh, I digress, but it was, it was, mm -hmm. it was fun. Dude. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, it definitely sounds it. Um, I think so. And then, you know, you move back to ADP after BMI so before before you move back to ADP, it seems what what are you thinking towards the end of your BMI, I guess, career? We'll say. Yeah. Gosh, you know, that's a good question. I started to think about graduate school at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and I was kind of enamored by this notion of like international business. I like proper international business because I was, mm -hmm. you know, looking at like freight companies that would move oil 
from continent to continent, like real true international business, like commodity utility based international business. Um, and so I started to trend in that direction. I was thinking about getting an MBA or like doing the graduate program at like INSEAD and going mm -hmm. to live abroad again and doing stuff like that. Um, but I think where my head was at was that I knew that if sales was kind of like an empirical, had more art than science, had to learn it firsthand, an experiential thing that you honed over time, I wanted to start to round that out with a more technical uh, kind of education. Okay. And, and, and I started to think about that in terms of like business school and then also just to tie it full circle because my undergraduate degree was in liberal arts. I knew a lot about a little, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I, I didn't have a depth to be dangerous in any one like kind of element. And I didn't really get like a true kind of business craft education. Um, but at that point too, I, I knew, I knew that there was exciting growth at BMI. Mm -hmm. um, we were, private equity owned. So there was an interesting equity scheme happening. And I knew that there were some strategics that were looking to acquire us that because we would fit real neatly into the kind of like their market research portfolio. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I guess, you know, I was, I was, I wasn't, and then just to kind of answer the question by perhaps explaining my transition to ADP. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was in the small business group at ADP, they put me in like a hybrid role where I was effectively working like the biggest of the small business accounts. Okay. And so you, in most SaaS kind of tech businesses, right? You have like SMB, small mid market businesses, mid or sometimes called major accounts. And then you have nationals or enterprise. Right. And so I was kind of in this gray area that sat between SMB and mid market. And so mm -hmm. I'd gotten exposure to a lot of the mid market people at, at ADP and they were just <clears throat> as far as I, and, and, you know, Ryan May, right like that's that that was my guy and, and there's a joke like his my 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 cube was right outside his desk when he was a sales executive so he was running a team in the major accounts group at, at adp and uh <laughs> and he used to just hear me banging on the phones and just sounding like an idiot all day but just grinding and hustling and trying to be better and you know knocking on his door just begging for help <laughs> mm -hmm. like tell me this tell me you hope you you know you have a silver bullet that's going to solve all my problems because whatever i'm doing is just not working um so he and i had kind of interacted at that point then i left and i was at bmi doing my thing and he hit me up and mentioned that two of their top performers had just moved into leadership and so he was like, Hey, like there's some spots on the bench that just opened up. And, you know, I think this is probably going to be an outstanding opportunity. And I just mm -hmm. knew that in terms of culture, it was Ryan. And then, you know, two or three other people in the office, um, yeah. a gentleman named Brian Ravel, who was became hugely influential. He went to NYU and, and did the whole business school thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I just knew that as far as I understood, that was a group of sales professionals that I admired the most. Mm -hmm. And I want, and I knew that that was valuable. And so that's what drew me over to ADP and for, for the second time, <laughs> as yeah. a, a, bo a boomerang, as they say. Mm -hmm. So when you do actually touch base down on ADP again, and, um, you know, it's no longer kind of that friendly relationship you might have outside of not working together as, with like Ryan. But um, so I guess when you walk back through those doors, what is your number one goal? Oh man, to grow, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think, uh, something that's become kind of, you know, I joke like growth is my religion. Um, 
And, you know, I think kind of my life, my life mantra is I start to dig into myself and, and think more about like my why and my purpose, right? I, I think a lot of it gravitates around like grow what's good. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that point, yeah, I just wanted to get better. I just wanted to get better and I wanted to learn from the best. And that was really, and be like the best and surpass the best, frankly. Right. Um, so I think that was my biggest motivation. So I think right now would be a good time to do a quick pause. Um, a couple, some viewers like to give me questions to ask um, my interviewees. Well, yeah, um, no doubt. And so, and one of those would be um, at this point, at this point with the, with the experience you have now and the acumen, the business acumen, what would make an ideal candidate if they were interesting and interested in joining your occupation and what could they do to excel in that role? I know that you've mentioned hustle more than a few times, but I guess to hone in more, what would make an ideal candidate? Okay. Like an ideal candidate for like a VP of sales thing. Yeah. Oh man. Wow. That's uh, gosh. One of my favorite interview questions ever is how would you interview this person? Or mm-hmm. how would you hire this person, right? Um, and there's a there's this uh, I think it was a Tim Ferriss podcast I was listening to, and he was talking to this guy who's known as like the talent whisperer uh, for hedge funds. And yep. his story I was that. that yeah, it's good, right? And he's like, he's like, you know, when I when my wife was pregnant and we were interviewing, uh, I forget the name, uh, but basically the, the doctor that would facilitate the whole pregnancy or oversee the pregnancy and facilitate the birth and all these things. And he basically asked him how he should hire him. And the dude was like, Mm -hmm. well, here's the deal. You need to understand what the basically intensive care unit is like during a pregnant, like there's this pregnant specific intensive care unit. You want to make sure that that's lockstep because basically most pregnancies go well, but you want to make sure that there's a challenge that they are totally polished up for that. And then I'd also interview his nurses because, you know, they'll tell you candidly how he acts under pressure. And if he's, you know, cold as ice or if he gets fumbled, because again, most of what you need to optimize for is if things move south. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is a great question, frankly, but um, you know, for stepping into my world. So I think um, it's, it's mainly about building a team. It's about building a machine. And, and in in doing that, you need to be insanely effective at hiring. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to be insanely effective at ramping and, and getting, having some type of operationalized thing or method to get people to a certain level of competence and comprehension and productivity as soon as you possibly can. And then um, with that, you need to get them to, to perform probably better than they thought they could be. So I guess what one can pieces is just kind of building the the squad initially and being Mm -hmm. able to attract talent and articulate what the gig is going to be and having a good understanding and a good sense for what that talent needs to look like and what a profile looks like for that person to be successful. And by virtue of that, you start to think about building culture and what those kind of consistent traits are going to look like across the squad. Um, And then I would say for sure, like now you have to have a deep technical or, and, and not deep because I mean, you know, like, I don't have a deep technical competence. Like, you know, I, my, our head of ops, our head of enablement, but I, I know what's possible, mm-hmm. right? Like I know that what tools are available and what they can achieve conceptually. I don't know deep down how they, you know, the certain nuances of certain things, right? Like I can't tell you how our machine learning models work, but I know that I know what they can do. 
right? And so it's very important as a VP of sales to understand the toolkit that's available to you because you mm-hmm. can make everything infinitely more efficient and targeted and effective if you can inject technology into it, especially machine learning, especially automation, you know, different stuff like that. So I guess to be more concise in responding, you need to be really good at hiring and coaching and developing people. And then mm-hmm. you also need to be very clear on the tools and, and knowledgeable and like bleeding edge, like staying very, very current on the tools that are available to you and how to apply those tools to your business to make every, to, to get levels of efficiency that you could have never done. Um, and then I think lastly is, and something that we're learning a ton about right now is how, and, and I guess just to, like something that I pride myself on and, and I'm kind of a weirdo in terms of like a textbook kind of VP of sales profile, like I trend more brand and like community building just because of my background. But I always Mm -hmm. say, you know, something I really enjoy is turning art into pop, right? So taking something and positioning it and massaging it such that it appeals to a certain audience so that it appeals to the masses. Mm -hmm. So I would say you need to be very good at connecting the dots in a macro capacity to say, okay, here's our audience here's what we have. How do we fit this in such a way that it'll land just right? And then you use technology and automation to make that process as efficient as possible. And then you get your team fired up and and confident and capable to facilitate that motion. I like that. I like the art and the pop. I think um, (laughs) I just, I just had a conversation yesterday with a woman, her name's Pamela and she kind of said something very similar um just making what isn't what only appeals to a certain group appeal to everybody and Mm. like you said make it as efficient as possible so um that seems to be the trend among high level executives interesting interesting and i I guess too i should the huge caveat is that you know a vp of sales thing is also like titles just to tell you so little you know, I think what mm-hmm. probably tells you more is like the stage of the company, stuff like that, right? Because my role evolves, you know, on a weekly basis too. And then maybe that just to answer your question goes into the kind of profile um, for what, you know, what I would suggest that somebody wants to step into a role like mine is, is you know, being very thoughtful that you're, the environment's going to be crazy fast paced and your gig is going to change and you have to kind of remind yourself on, of what's valuable and what the priorities should be, you know, mm-hmm. almost daily. Mm-hmm. And so I guess if we, if we scale back to back when you're back at ADP and you, you then do enroll in graduate school. So what are the, what are some of the challenges you face while having, um, Oops, I think I lost your audio, my friend. Can you hear me? Maybe it's my head. Yeah, it was just when when you're when you're holding you know your sales executive title and VC partnerships, um, and in graduate school, what is that is what is that like with that workload? Uh, <laughs> not sustainable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I often wonder about that. Um, I I like school. I like. The, the act of education. I like learning. I like the stimulus. Uh, mm-hmm. I like the exposure to the professors. Like at NYU, that was probably the coolest part is, you know, 
they want a professor to be like, hey, you know, I don't really have a lecture for tonight, so we're going to have the CEO of like BuzzFeed talk about whatever's happening in their world. And it was just like, whoa. Um, so yeah. I love that part. Um, and my, when I did, so I, the whole thing with, with business school, right, it's like the GMATs, like you basically have to go back and learn all the content from like junior year of high school <laughs> and like master it because that's, that's like the language that they test you against, right? Like that's like a, a, a way that they can actually analyze your intelligence in some like mm -hmm. universal way. So grad school is kind of, or, you know, business school, not really grad school is uh, interesting because it's not just those few years when you're in school, it's the year or so before where you're, you know, studying for the test and taking the tests and writing your application and doing all that other stuff. So the commitment level is pretty intense. Um, but I was kind of hell bent on it. And I'm not sure if that's because I had a chip on my shoulder because I went to this lesser known D3 school in like Southern Pennsylvania. And mm -hmm. I didn't, and I thought that that made me lesser than, you know, the Harvard people that were again in Manhattan, you know, working at investment banks. Right. Like I think looking back on it, I had, there was definitely some ego in play. Um, right. But to, to answer your question, I mean, it is a, it is a relentless grind, man. Uh, if you do part-time, and you're hustling during the day, you know, that's at least two, three hour classes a week. So it's, you know, Monday you're getting home. So maybe it's like Monday, Wednesday, you get home at 10 PM, you know, and then you got homework and other stuff, Tuesday, Thursday, at least half your weekend shot. I remember mm -hmm. my, my butt got sore just from sitting, dude, just from all yeah. the sitting. I was like, damn, I'm just stiff from this, you know? Um, and if you are doing that, that's like a three hour, that's like a three year thing. So it's basically mm -hmm. like no, no more Monday, Wednesday nights and like Saturday, four hour chunks, maybe more for three years. It's not like, okay, we've got the, you know, the, the fall and spring and we get summers off. It's like, no, you punch the clock and you just go. And that's what kind of in, informed me deciding to, to actually resign from my gig. I was in, we maybe get there later. I spun up my own consulting firm and it was like, all right, I'm going to double down, get this MBA out of the way, because frankly, I wasn't prepared to grind at that pace. And I didn't mm -hmm. want to slow down the pace because that was just going to extend the timeline out to like four or five years. And I didn't want to do that. Um, so what I would say is a part-time MBA is hard as hell. It's hard mm -hmm. on you. It's hard on your relationships. It's hard on your friends. It's hard on, um, everything so you need to be crystal clear on your motivation all righty i i like that a lot um so to yeah so to get into that you spun up your own um consulting firm so i guess kind of tell us about scaling ventures yes um so it actually started when i was at adp um mm -hmm. And this is when I kind of learned. So basically in the New York city office was kind of an anomaly. Like we operated a little bit more autonomously than the rest of the country because Manhattan is such a strange kind of one-off market. So mm -hmm. what ended up happening was I was running a team at this point. And for the first time in New York, we had like these growth stage companies. Like we had mm -hmm. like Spotify, Bonobos, Warby right. Parker app, Nexus, uh, MongoDB, right? These companies that looked and felt like they were out of Silicon Valley. Uh, and we were in my team, we were trying to pitch these groups and mm -hmm. the last, and we were like the antithesis of everything that they stood for, right? Like we were this stodgy, 
industry incumbent that was, you know, known for bad service, <laughs> like all these things. Right. And I was like, okay. And we were trying to run like the classic sales book motion, like, Hey, calls, emails, let's chase this stuff up, named accounts, et cetera. And it just wasn't working. So I knew at that point that thought leadership was very valuable. That community building was very valuable. People were starting to attend a lot of events and if there was this audience for startups that was starting to thrive, which was like, you know, meetups or um, incubators, accelerators, stuff like that, there was kind of this void for the startup or for executives at, for, at companies for that next stage of growth, like series A, series B groups who were like scale ups, so to speak. So mm-hmm. I spun up this networking forum, community thing, whatever you want to call it. And we called it Scaling NYC. And we would basically bring together the smartest of these rapid growth executives and we would curate panels around it and we would, um, you know, do networking events of different kinds and then we would capture the content and, and you know, use that in a range of different ways. And it was super effective and it allowed me to kind of build a network really effectively and to create relationships with these groups. And then one that, once they understood what we were about, you know, a lot of the way that we would monetize it was via ADP, right? So we would then be in a better place to kind of, uh, sell ADP's products and things like that. But as a byproduct of that, I established a pretty solid network in New York with this audience pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And what we also did was kind of build our own tech stack, if you want to call it that, um, while at ADP. So we were starting to use outbound technology. We were starting to kind of use our own CRM, things like that, just as a team. And we were effectively building like our own like little sales organization that was super nimble and very progressive, very modern. We were using the, the latest, greatest, everything, right? Mm-hmm. And so after after over a little bit of time, I started to kind of just get inbound in, or asked about consulting. Like, hey, can you help us with this or that? Um, and I was like, wow. And there was kind of a moment when it was like, I think I can do this. And this would allow me to double down on business school and just crank mm-hmm. and get my MBA and not lose any income or, you know, I, I lost income, but like, but not like go to zero income, like proper, you know, student. And so I jumped in, man. Um, and so that's when scaling NYC evolved into scaling ventures, which was my own consulting firm. And again, I was just working with like these series A series B groups who were trying to build a sales infrastructure for the first time and, and going to school for like half the day. Um, most days of the week and that was and that was that and so do you you still run scaling ventures still exists it does uh in the sense that it's you know i still you know i've got the url and it's on the shelf i guess but it still exists i you know it's still an llc you know and yeah but it's uh maybe one day we'll fire it back up but for now it's Mm -hmm. It's on the it's on the bench. It's on the shelf waiting. So one of um, a trend I've seen about um, across the folks I have interviewed, all of them have their own personal venture. They've all started something, and um, so I guess for you, um, what were some of the hardest parts of getting off the ground? Oh man. You know, I'm not sure if it was getting off the ground that was tough. You know, I think for a lot of, because for me, it kind of just, I was just pulled into it almost, you know, Mm -hmm. like uh, it kind of like the universe just kind of 
pulled me. Thank gosh. I wish I'm something I'm focusing on right now is doing a better job letting the universe pull and not just fighting all the time. Um, But it, you know, so I think for a lot of people, it's probably like the art of the start or like getting over the fear of like that first jump. Um, Mm -hmm. For me, whether I'm crazy or not, like, I I guess I had like the, the, the risk appetite to get there maybe quicker than most people do. But for me, I think, what was the hardest is, is all the cliche, all the cliche shit is true, dude. Like as, as we get older, you know, like I look back and it's like, listen to your heart and you're like, yeah, yeah. okay, whatever. <laughs> you're like, it's like, yeah, whatever. Right. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, that's so right. Right. <laughs> you know? And so all the cliches too about entrepreneurship, you know, mm-hmm. like they're, they're true too. Like it's lonely. Mm-hmm. you know, like you're grinding and sometimes you need to call somebody just to get, what's out of your head out of your head so that you can understand it better and you can communicate it and get feedback so for me i think you know the act of creation or being an entrepreneur starting something is more so about getting the same kind of fulfillments out of a regular job because you know and half the time people think you're crazy or you know all again all the cliches right you can't do it right this is stupid you shouldn't do it right mm-hmm. and it's like the only people that are crazy enough to change or the only people who think they're or the only people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world do it right Right? you know just to throw some steep jobs out there and so i guess i would say to anybody is that like you know in the 2000s and this is a joke too that i used to say at my panels but it's like in the 90s everybody wanted to be in or everybody was in a band right like that was the way i'm gonna be a rock star and that's how i'm gonna be on the cover of magazines and i'm gonna go triple platinum and i'm gonna have this dope penthouse and it's gonna be amazing and then in the 2000s, it was Zuckerberg on the cover of magazines, right? And Josh Dorsey. And so for, it was like, I'm going to be, a, I'm going to start a company, right? And, and so everybody then had a side hustle, had a startup project. And I mm-hmm. think that, it, you know, as all things do, they get very romanticized um, because entrepreneurship is lonely. It sucks. It's volatile. You know, like all of a sudden, like you, income is like this and this and this. And so it's weird to plan that way. It's tough on relationships, um, but it's also very fulfilling. And, you know, I think for me too, I've, I, as I, again, as I get older, I try to kind of just come back to center and identify with whatever my why is. And it's like, I was just like building shit. Yeah. You know, and for me, it was that easy. It was like, I just like building stuff. And that was that. Mm-hmm. I think um, I can definitely resonate with the romanticized, um, aspect as well as the cliches are true. I know. Um, I mean, I was in my, I was in the barbershop once and, um, I, you know, I sang a little bit for my barber who, who like produces a little, um, you know, he's got a whole setup and, um, you know, I'm kind of just, he's my barber. So, you know, you have a personal relationship. He's been cutting my hair for five years and I'm telling him about my ventures. Like I'm writing a book. I'm prospecting or prospectively starting my own business and um you know and i'm like "Eh, but it's hard and you know scary and i'm just like safe i know i'm safe working for someone else Mm -hmm. and one thing he said to me really stuck he said you know what when you're you know 50 60 years old the only person who's going to be mad at you for the things you didn't start is yourself or the things you didn't see through to the end and I think that that really kind of hit home um, so much to where I, I like think about that a lot, especially when I want to quit. I'm like, oh, 
well, at the end of the day, the only person who's going to be mad at my mad at me for quitting is me, you know, because all all the relationships you've ever had, more than probably 90% of them are gone. Mm -hmm. And I mean, as grim as it is, um, you know, your parents will die um, before you and I mean, even your dogs, they only have a shelf life of 10 to 15 years. Um, so really it's you, you, the, the relationships you end with are so like small in the breadth of your life that the only person that can really disappoint you is you. Um, Oof, so I think that's that, something there, man. Wow. I think that that was important. Yeah, that's good. And that's, yeah, that's like, no, it's, there, there was some data on this and it was like, the vast majority of like final advice of parents is to, is for, to their kids to take more risks. Yeah, like, that is, I wish, mm-hmm. I wish I would have taken more risks. You should take more risks. Don't have any regrets, you know, mm-hmm. that, um, we'll, we'll get to a question later when we start to wrap up. But one of the things that, um, Pamela, who I had spoken with before, she said, um, take more risks. And I'm, that just, that's just true. I mean, Nothing ventured, nothing gained is that's the name of the game. If you can't you can't win if you don't try. No doubt. Like Gretzky said, you don't you don't score hundred percent of the shots you don't take, you know? Mm-hmm. And you won't know if you don't it's just it's just a crazy concept. It's just a yes, concept to think like I sit here and I'm like I'm I'm twenty six years old. First off, I think I'm so old. I'm like, oh my gosh, my life is coming to a yeah. screeching halt. God, I can't believe you're so young, dude. Oh my God. Jeez. But it's it's just crazy to think of all the all the things, even in my short time, that I didn't do because I was scared. And because I was like, eh, that's not really the movement I feel like I should do just because I'll be safer doing something else. A hundred percent. And that's and that's, you know, all the growth is uh, steel is made in fire. Diamonds mm-hmm. form under pressure, you know, it goes on and on and on, but that's, you know, nobody ever got anywhere comfy and cozy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos didn't become the richest man in the world, just hanging out. That's it, man. Eating potato chips. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think, I hope that all of our viewers, uh, if nothing else, tune into at least that segment, take risks. That's it, man. And, and be, and be calculated, right? But don't overanalyze. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's another thing. Um, and of gosh, this is some good advice too. It's like, what do you want and what are you willing to give up to get it? Mm-hmm. You know, and that just comes full circle back to like the NBA, you know, or, or anything really, but it's like, you best believe that whatever it is, there are going to be sacrifices along the way. And, uh, and if you're not crystal clear on that going in, you know, any type of superficial motivation will not last, you know? And that's like, when we say in sales, it's like, Hey, why do you want to get like, Oh, the money. And it's like, man, when you're in the trenches and the bullets are flying over your head, you're not peeking up and you're not running because of the money, Mm -hmm. right? It has to be something else. It has to be the, you know, the, the brotherhood of the team that you're with. It has to be the growth, you know? And I found that the pursuit of that growth is, is the, is the motivator that will get you through the deepest, uh, darkest days, you know, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, again, if you're not crystal clear on that motivation and it's not something that's real, um, right. you know, then that shit will fade fast. You will be exposed. Mm-hmm. Definitely. 
Um, so if we could just, you know, scale back a little bit to your time at Scaled. Um, sure. So, dev, so is, are Scaled and scaling ventures like related? <laughs> yes. So very, very confusing, <laughs> right? Um, so when I started Scaling NYC, everyone was like, dude, I can't believe you didn't put a K in there. Your last name's Scalrude. You should have done that. That's so obvious and easy. And I was like, ah, you know, I didn't really want to do that. And like, it was mm-hmm. a lot of the folks on my team at ADP had a huge influence and impact and a lot of help on that. So I didn't want to slap my name on it so much. Right. And I stepped into this other world and Jake Dunlap was running scales and he was mm-hmm. hugely influential in my life. Um, I actually brought him or helped get, bring him into ADP to do some work. And he was helping us rethink a very modern sales motion and just be much more progressive than we were. Um, and so I'd always admired him and I step into this new world. Going, I'm like, all right, my thing is about to be my thing. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> and uh, I, I remember calling Jake and I was like, dude, I gotta go. I gotta name. I gotta go with the K for scaling ventures. He was yeah. like, you're, you're a dick, dude. <laughs> it's, like, dude it's like, I'm not cool with that. Like you shouldn't do it. And I was like, I have to do it. He's like, all right, fine, whatever. Um, so very confusing, but scaling ventures was my thing and was very similar kind of lines of work. And then, but I was also like a mercenary for hire, if you will, for Jake over mm-hmm. at scale. So I was working on a wide range of projects with him as well. And then I had some projects that were kind of under the umbrella of my own practice. Mm-hmm. So extraordinarily confusing and adding the case into it makes it more confusing, but mm-hmm. it was same kind of work. Just some of the stuff I, I kind of did on my own and then some of the stuff Jake would bring me in on to help with. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, you're, you're at scale scaling and then in, Oh, let me think. What was it? In June of last year, June of 18. Sure. You join yeah. Harry. Yes. Uh, yep. No, it, it, no, it was was it? It was June? August. It was August. August but the, August, the wheels yeah. started turning pretty good in June. Yep. Yeah, I think I remember. Um, I was down there in July, and Ryan Ryan Meng, he was at like I, I got kale coming in, and I was like, the the lettuce. What it's is like, kale? <laughs> Who the hell like, is that? Is <laughs> kale. Are we eating yeah. good today? Like yeah, right, for lunch, <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, you come into Harry, you set the world on fire. Just tremendous energy from the moment I ever saw you on a video conference. It was just you were ready to go. Just and I was like, I gotta be ready to go. Like I gotta be ready to go. What's going on? <laughs> um, so how you know how do you bring? all this energy to a brand new environment because it, mm. it's, it's, it's nerve wracking. You know, you start a new place, you're somewhere new. Nobody knows. Well, Ryan knew who you are, but essentially 99% of the team doesn't know who you are. How, how do you bring in this confidence and then further justify having this confidence? Yeah. Gosh, that's a great question, Nick. Um, so I guess I, I was kind of used to being the new guy in the sense mm-hmm. of when you're consult because consulting is tough, dude. It's a rough racket because basically mm-hmm. you have like you basically change companies every three months. Right. Right. And, and you have to onboard yourself most time 
And just like the first week or two on any type of project, I would be so shot because just the download was so such a, like a cognitive load that I would just be Mm -hmm. shot. You go in and you just try to consume as much information as you can and just get up to speed as soon as you possibly can. And then you're all the while you're assessing and then you put together a game plan and then it's about hitting it right and and executing. Um, So I, I only say that as a little bit of like a primer perhaps, because when I came in, it wasn't like I was coming from a job that I had just spent like two, three, four, five years at. Like I was used mm-hmm. to coming in on a project basis, getting my sleeves dirty that day and just hitting it as hard as I possibly could and just trying mm-hmm. to drive outcomes and drive results out of the gate. Um, and, you know, and, and for me, it was super interesting too, because I had to get really clear on my motivation and mm-hmm. what got me jazzed. And, um, And I think for me, it was like, I saw, it was like, if it's a hundred percent pizza pie, like of my motivation is a hundred percent, like 60% of it was that I I knew what needed to be done. Like I was Mm -hmm. crystal clear on what needed to be done. And then there was like 20 to 30 or, you know, 20% maybe that I knew that I was good at it. Like I, and I had a track record and, and that I, you know, I was expert at a lot of the stuff. And then the other 20% was like unknown. <laughs> and I was like, right. and I love that. I was like, the other 20%, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know 20% mm-hmm. I've, I can execute here. I know I can, and I can do this and do it well. And I also was very clear on what needed to happen. Um, so those kind of ingredients came together. And, and I think I just found it very naturally motivating. Um, mm-hmm. And I was jazz. And I, I think what allowed me, Gosh, hopefully my confidence didn't come off as arrogance, but like, I was just excited to get everyone excited to do the thing, mm-hmm. you know? And it was like, guys, like we, like we got, like, this is what we're going to do. We got this, you know, and, and collectively getting there. Right. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I know, I know very rarely do I have all the answers, let alone the answer that's probably the right one. So it's about that collect, you know, teasing that type of genius out of the collective is mm-hmm. half the battle. Um, but I was just jazzed, man. <laughs> I, I guess you know yeah like mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking about it so much it was just kind of a byproduct of a certain few ingredients that resonated with me mm-hmm. I think um, in a couple conversations I've had in the past couple months um, one of the things I um, have to testament is my time at Harry because I know um, I I was always pretty much handed everything like jobs, um, relationships, friends. I mean, a lot of things come naturally just because I'm really charismatic or somehow somewhere along the lines, I met somebody and they find me later in life. Like, Oh my gosh, like, I can't believe you're here. And it's like, uh, Oh dude, okay. I know the Nick charm firsthand. My friend. Yes, <laughs> so, <know that. laughs> so, um, but I think, you know, this was my first real taste of being in sales and I've never, mm. I mean, you know, I've waited tables and, stuff like that, but this is really it. I've never, I've never had to work hard. Um, as I've mentioned earlier, I, I don't like, I just haven't because mm-hmm. usually I can put myself in front of someone and nine times out of 10, I'll be successful. But sure, I mean, I'm just kind of through it. Mm-hmm, phones, yeah. emails. Um, I can't make it up as I go along. Right. And I think, you know, huge, huge thank you to you. Um, because your, your energy was just invigorating 
from day one. And I was like, oh man, I, I gotta get on that level. Like I gotta come in every day, like a step higher than him. And you know, that comes to just wanting to be the best. And, you know, I know, I remember you, um, once you guys started to put out like metrics and I wasn't at the top, I was like sick to my stomach. I was like, oh my, why am I not at the top? Why am I not number one right now? And I've never, I guess, truly felt like that. I guess I've been okay to be lazy, but I was just like, ah, I'm so hungry, right? I've never, I've never felt like a hunger like that. I've never felt so fueled. And that just comes from your energy and it, and it, it influenced more than just me. And I know that because I would, you know, sometimes get messages and like, oh man, Nick, your energy is awesome. And I'm like, my energy's not a Kale's energy, so it's not that great yet. Like, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. So, um, and I still use that to this day. And like, your, yeah. I mean, without, yeah, without your energy, I'm probably not doing this podcast. Um, I think, oh, I think with your, I think one of the, one thing I want to compliment you on, and I hope you never stop, is just you can you can make some, you can make everyone in the room feel like they're in the room and um i you hear a lot i feel i feel like i'm the only person in the room but you can make everyone feel like they're in the room and i think that is such an admirable and amazing trait and now i try to more so impress that in every room i'm in um I want to say, you know, I know this is a temporary pause, but uh, thank you so much for, I guess, lighting the fire in me that propelled me forward. Dude, in my old age, man, I'm, I'm getting emotional. Be careful. This is uh, <laughs> like we're like right on the edge. Um, dude, that means the absolute world to me. Uh, truly. Holy smokes. That's uh, that's what it's all about, man. That's what it's all about. That's uh you know, it's the flames are always there, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that flame was always there. It's just certain things stoke it. And if you can find that thing that stokes it and you can do that for everyone around you, that's a special thing. That's when everybody starts to ascend, you know? And then to your point is it's not a, it's not a one-way thing. It's a thing that, you know, that you reverberate back on me. You, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And it's like a vibration and everything just lifts and lifts and lifts. And that's when it's, when you have that kind of energy flowing and it inspires mm -hmm. creativity and it inspires growth, mm -hmm. dude, that's, that's what I'm all about. That's, yeah. and I think, you know, gosh, if you find that stuff and you hold on to it for dear life, you know, because <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the secret. That's the secret I, sauce. I think that even now, um, you know, sometimes I'll be like, oh, I don't have a hundred percent today. And I'll literally think to myself, I bet your kale's running around somewhere. Like, yeah. I bet you he's just moving really fast. <laughs> I gotta pick uh, it up. And, and, uh, and that's, and the, you know, too, like uh, you know, as as an athlete and, and a fitness enthusiast and all that other stuff, it's mm -hmm. you got to keep all that stuff dialed just right, you know. And you got to have balance, and you got to find the things that do fill your cup because burnout central or burnout's so real. That's like another mm -hmm. thing that's like, Oh, burnout. Yeah. Like when you work too hard. Okay. And then all of a sudden you're like, Whoa, like, Oh, I know what burnout is, you mm -hmm. know? And to your point, like if you're not reading the stuff that lights you up or listening to the stuff that lights you up, 
are hitting the gym because you just love spending that time or eating clean or meditating. You know, if you start to fill those voids with things that hurt you, um, it's, it's hard to maintain that kind of energy and all the other stuff. Um, so, and then I only mentioned that too, because I'm up and down just like everyone else, my man, I'm up and down all the time. So the challenge is to kind of maintain mm-hmm. staying at that, at that high level and keeping the energy high and staying positive and seeing the blessings and all that other stuff. And that is all, that all takes practice. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it doesn't, you know, it's the shitty days happen to, to us all. It's, you know, more so how you handle them and how you bounce back. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I know we kind of went off on a tangent, but to uh, reel it back, just to yeah. uh, reel it back a little bit. Um, so for those of us who don't know who are listening, um, what is Harry? Oh, snap. Um, so Harry, yes. So we are uh, a tech company mm-hmm. that, that provides software as a service. And we focus purely on, on one kind of category and, and that is service driven businesses. Mm-hmm. So think restaurants, hotels, um, retail operations, now groceries and groups like that. And we provide a tool that helps, uh, ooh, sorry, household's getting a little noisy here. Um, and we, we provide a tool that, that helps. Uh, so if you think about like what those environments look like, right? It's like people are on their feet working it's mostly hourly employee populations um things like that and in those categories unfortunately there's like a really high turnover like 80 percent turnover so there's this like constant recruiting and hiring and onboarding motion that happens um for those groups the schedule is usually like the most important part like that's like the kind of the focal point for their relationship with their employer like when is my schedule i need to switch a a shift stuff like that um and then on the leadership level how effective you are with your labor has a huge impact on how profitable and how just productive the business is so what harry does and our ceo is a restaurateur he used to uh Mm -hmm. be a big multi-unit burger king franchisee in australia and he came over to New York and he still operates restaurants today. And, uh, you know, he started basically with this notion that like, all right, and this is the story goes, right? Like uh, at, at the time, the dating app revolution happened. So like mm-hmm. eHarmony and all these websites were just exploding. And he's like, gosh, there are apps where people can find dates, but I have to go to Craigslist to find a line chef in my restaurant. Right. So Harry's Roots were as a, a two-sided marketplace for a purely purpose for hospitality. Um, I only tell you that because we've evolved substantially, but um, just to bring the story full circle, right? Like we provide a tool that addresses the most important types of of interactions and employee activities that happen in these service-driven businesses, which is usually like an applicant tracking, onboarding tool, a scheduling tool. And we pull all that Mm -hmm. stuff together into one platform. um, And we try to make the employee experience much better because they're living in one place. And then by Mm -hmm. virtue of that, the operator, the manager experience is is much better too, because they're not bouncing between tools. Definitely. Long-winded so, explanation, but that, that's what we're yeah. up to, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so let's March. March? March what? 15th-ish, we'll say? Mm-hmm. The Ides of March. Ironic oh, that it was about yeah, that's, right. Oh, dude, that's uh, going to be a thing. You should yeah. coin that right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let's, so when, you know, the Ides of March, oh my gosh, the world really shut down when Julius Caesar also went down. That's it, Zero. man. Yes. Oh. Um, so when that hits, what happens? What runs through your head when it really hits? Oh, shit, man. Um, 
it's interesting. So I was on a vacation. I took the that Wednesday, Thursday, Friday off. And it was my brother's 50th birthday. And so we shot over to Iceland as a family to celebrate. And so COVID was just starting to pop off. New York was getting a little bit sketchy and I shot out of Dodge and like the airport was a little like at that point, like you could tell that people were starting to get, you know, put their, their flags up and people started wearing masks, the, the, mm-hmm. the flight attendants and stuff like that. Not so much land in Iceland and things just start to escalate really, really quickly. And we're like, Whoa, you know, are they, they're starting to shut down international travel. And this is when like mm-hmm. Italy went like on straight up lockdown yeah. um, and some different markets like that. And so I was like, damn, this is like a real thing. Uh, and this is going to be impactful. And I knew that hospitality was just going to get rocked. Absolutely yeah. rocked, right? I was like, in, the, in the, uh, the setting of a pandemic, this could be catastrophic to Harry. And so I get back to New York and I catch up with Meg. And he's like, dude, he's like, we're, we're word is, and we've been kind of bouncing through our networks. And we started to get a consensus that, you know, upwards of 80% of restaurants were going to be shut down like straight up and the more full service, the more fine dining, basically the more places where you eat at the restaurant, the more in trouble they were going to be restaurants like fast food where there's drive through or takeout, you know, delivery type stuff that that was probably going to be okay. Um, but my first thought was, Oh shit, Harry's going to go under. Mm-hmm. Um, because we were in the process of raising a big series B round. Like we were kicking butt. It's like we, and you know, as you know, like we were, all the cliche like you know double 50% quarterly revenue growth blah 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 off to the races firmly established in the enterprise working with all these outstanding name brands this is amazing and then it was like <laughs> it was like yeah 80 percent of our client base is basically pausing operations completely they're likely not going to be able to pay us we're not mm-hmm. sure if they're going what they're going to look like on the other side of this their employee populations are getting, all of them are furloughed, right? We sell a tech that is to manage your employees. And now all these restaurants have laid off 80% of their employees. Um, so I think, and I guess if I look at it, like my biggest learning lesson from all this, you know, was originally it was like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And as soon as we shifted that conversation towards like, what can we do? Mm-hmm. Things started to get really, really interesting. Um, so, but to answer your question, the Ides of March, man, I was wondering if I was going to have a job. Yeah. Straight Definitely. up. And I was, and I was feeling like shit because a ton of people around me didn't have jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it came hard and it came quick and it, you know, thing with a virus, it just doesn't discriminate. Everyone suffers the same way. A hundred percent. And that, and that's why it was so strange because it wasn't like some world war broke out. Mm-hmm. It was like we all felt mostly safe, and a lot of life was at, per usual, but it wasn't. Right. You know, it was like an economic recession, but at the same point, people were getting sick and dying. But still, for whole segments of the population, it was like you know, most of my reality is the same. I just can't leave my house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, me, I can't leave my house. Well, I can and I do, but. I should. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I think that uh, um, <clears throat> I think we're gonna tad over, but that's okay. That's okay. Uh, no stress. I, so to I guess wrap it up. Um, one question I found to be really fun, and I think I'm gonna continue to ask is, so where you are now, all you've garnered, 
um, all the knowledge you have. If tomorrow, if tomorrow you walked into 22 fresh graduate year old you, what would you tell him? Oh my God. What would I tell 22-year-old Kale? <laughs> I would tell him I love him, man. I would tell him I love him and that he's going to do well and that he needs to be gentle with himself. Uh, again, all the cliches, right? But, I, you mm-hmm. know, I would tell him, like, be, be gentle on yourself. You're going to work your ass off and you're going to do the best that you can. Mm-hmm. And just know that and be easy. Um, be Because a, a book that's had a huge influence on me is uh, your one thing, the one thing. It's outstanding. Um, mm-hmm. And he says, you know, you can clench your way to success. You can clench your way to success, but it'll probably kill you. And on the other hand, you can dance your way to success. And most of us are better dancers than we are clenchers. You know, Um but to answer your question, I, I would probably tell him some very cliche stuff that probably wouldn't land with him, <laughs> but, but that I, but that I appreciate now. And it would be something And I think, you know, the whole notion of like follow your heart too is I think it's like, don't be scared of your own definition of success. Mm-hmm. Because I think for me, a lot of times I was scared to really pursue whatever lit me up because I didn't want to be a starving artist. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, maybe that's what success meant to me. Do you know what I mean? Like I would have been yeah. okay being the starving artist if I, if my craft was something that, that lit me up and I'm fortunate that I ended up, you know, I, I love building things and go to market and all that other stuff and I love it, but I would have just uh, kind of told him, be gentle with yourself, be honor and be true to your own definition of success. And, uh, and perhaps just be true to like kind of the, the process as well. You know, like just, I think, you know, Gary B says it all the time when the destination yeah. is the pro when the destination is the journey you've won, you know? Um, so try to get to that place soon and, and smile and have fun. Alrighty. Well, um, thank you so much, Kale, for joining us on the show. And um, I really appreciate it. Nick, dude, thank you. This was a this was a treat, man. It's uh, it's so good to catch up. Um, I love what you're doing, my man. Uh, this is awesome, and uh, thank you. It's what a privilege, what an honor. Thank you, brother. Thank you.